Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Australia podcast. We're bringing together the best technical leaders from across the industry to discuss passions, challenges, and ideas. I'm Mira, and I connect businesses with talented contractors in the Sydney market. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Evolution Exchange. Today, I'm joined by Nick, Rodrigo, and Wayne to discuss the challenges facing startups and scale-ups. Everyone's put together some great questions for the discussion today, so super keen to get into them. Um, but before we jump in, I'll just get everyone to introduce themselves. If, Nick, you wanted to start us off. Sure thing. Hello, I'm Nick. I am an engineering manager at Airtasker. Um yeah, uh, I guess a little bit uh, context about Airtasker. It's an infinitely scale marketplace. Uh, so basically, like you can do and get anything done on Airtasker, which is great. Um, something I'm actually really passionate about in the tech space is uh, building and scaling sustainably high-performing software teams. Uh, that's that. That's me. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. And Rodrigo, if you wanted to introduce yourselves next, please. Thank you. Yeah, uh, my name is Rodrigo. I'm engineering manager at Simply Wall Street. Um, if you haven't heard of us, we're on a mission to help uh, retail investors to make better decisions. So, if you, you know, in case you're interested in the stock market or invest in the stock market, you can, you can uh, um, check Simply Wall Street. Um, I have a lot of information that I can help you. Um, yeah, so uh, as an engineering manager, I I look after one of the future teams. Our platform um, is you know, divided into different different aspects. I look after one aspect of the platform, um, helping you know the, the the engineers and and um, the product team to 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 get things done. Um, yeah, something I'm passionate about um, in this space of you know working with startups. I guess the the thing that made me um, passionate about what I do is uh, being able to to scale like the facing the challenges not only on, on the on the people side but also the technical side the technical sides are um, you face very interesting problems when when you're scaling and you and you're growing so yeah. great thank you so much and we'll definitely jump into some of those shortly but Wayne if you wanted to intro yourself too my name's Wayne Thompson and I work at Benchon as the head of engineering. Um, Benchon's a B2B marketplace for employee skill sets and supply chain capabilities. Um, we match make government and enterprise companies um, on short to medium to long-term projects. Uh, something that I'm passionate about is finding innovative solutions to problems. And what's come up recently is a lot of machine learning and AI for our algorithms. Um, so, uh, getting into seeing how machine learning and AI can can tackle these innovative problems. And I think we've all seen with things like GPT that's exploded at the moment. Yeah. 100% and very cool. So we'll jump into the questions now. Thanks so much, everyone. Um, first question was from Rodrigo. So what strategies can startups employ to attract and retain top talent, particularly in the competitive job market where larger companies have more resources to offer? Yeah, this is a difficult one because I think it's where we all get stonewalled and think, oh my God, what can we do? Oh, we can't afford the rate, the going rates which that are out there in the marketplace. So a couple of things that we've done is um, looking to new entrants to to the country. So in immigration, people who want to get there a start. I have noticed that 
um, for immigrants from some countries where it may not be English speaking, they it's very hard for them to get their first foot into the industry in Sydney. And that may be because they have certain cultural gestures or something like that that doesn't get them past the recruiter because recruiters don't want to put forward someone who's not going to be 100% sort of thing. That's their job to filter down the candidates. So being able to give them that first step in, sometimes you, you're just blown away by how good they are and they're, they're willing to take that lower rate for that opportunity. I think the problem comes is how do you how do you hold on to them after that yeah I, I i totally agree with uh with with that approach as well uh not speaking fair tasker unfortunately uh I, I haven't been there for a particularly long time during a growth phase but um in my previous role working at a cryptocurrency exchange called swiftx uh this was kind of an interesting problem but almost in the reverse actually because we had a significant amount of capital we could use to attract top talent so it was more of a question of what talent do you bring in that will shape your team appropriately for, for long-term growth? And where do you price that talent appropriately as well, which was another interesting consideration. Um, you know, it's, it, it's worked out in a lot of ways for that company quite well, also in a lot of ways, a little bit to their detriment, I suppose. Um, so it's definitely an interesting, interesting question to deal with. Um, in my own personal experience, um, I, I have a, a startup that I'm, I'm sort of running on the side as well. Um, one of the biggest questions I, I like to ask myself is like, what what would I want as an engineer that is seasoned going into a smaller company that would make this beneficial for me in my role? Um, and that's been really helpful. Um, but again, everyone's different. So I, I guess for, for 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 me, I'm really I'm really interested in what makes other people um, be interested in these types of roles. And the, the results are so varying. Have, uh, have any of you guys had uh, any? <laughs> Yeah, any, any I, I agree that if you if you're hiring based on a monetary reward as opposed to perhaps like a reward of solving difficult problems that are interesting, then they're just going to leave and go on to the next role once there's a, a higher mm -hmm. reward. But when people are really like entrenched in that, I really want to get this algorithm done or this problem solved. I, I love the the problem domain. Um, then they're more likely to stay stay for longer as well. Yeah, I agree uh, with Wayne that uh, there are also other things that um, smaller companies and startups can offer that not necessarily the larger companies can offer. And, you know, if, if you think of culture, uh, if you think of the impact you can have on a team, that's a really good um, selling point that we, we also use when recruiting. So, you know, if we work with a company with 500 employees, how how the company is going to um, see your impact, right? And you, if you join a smaller company, pretty much everything you do can be can be can be can be seen straight away. So you have a much a much larger impact, um, and you can grow with the company as well, right? So um, larger companies, they can move slower. It can be a bit more bureaucratic uh, into you know delivering certain things. And usually in the startup space, we are a bit more fast-paced and we need to you know, react a little bit uh, quicker to changes. So this sort of environment you know, can, can be appealing for a lot of people. Um, so yeah, so these are the main points uh, that we, we try to you know, emphasize for candidates and when you try to attract talent. And uh, you know, they're gonna have a huge impact. They're gonna have the opportunity to have ownership of uh, uh, features of what they're building and, you know, 
and be able to 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 grow with the platform as well. Would you say, Rodrigo, that that kind of lends itself to more like junior developers joining certain teams? Like, obviously, there's going to be a place for senior developers that are looking to sort of take on more leadership roles. But at a general IC level, would you say that it tends to lean more junior developers to want to join startups? Uh, not necessarily. I um, th th that wasn't the case for me. Um, you know, I, I joined a startup after being senior for, for a few years, uh, and you know, and I just wanted to have the the feel for it. I would say like the 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 barrier is actually you know what we discussed in the beginning is the the compensation right. It can be it can be mm. difficult to compete, um, but not everyone is like after only compensation, right? If you if, if you being an engineer for, for a few years and you're in the market, you know that, you know, there are different types of joy you can feel. Like the obviously everyone needs money and and, and that's you know, um that's uh, it's something that everyone is happy to to have. But also, you know, do you enjoy what you're doing? Do you have a good team? Do you get along with everyone? So all those things also contribute. So I would say it's a mix. Uh, we get, yeah, definitely uh, a mix of you know junior, seniors. We have a lot of junior, uh, senior people joining recently. So I think yeah, I think it can work for for, for both. Yeah, I know. I know. I prefer working in startups just because you get that uh, more varied role where you might be doing some cloud deployments one day, and then you're doing some back end, then front end, jumping around. You end up learning so much really quickly, and sort of you know you're perfecting more skills. Whereas in an enterprise, you're just a cog in the wheel, and you might be say a middleware developer, and you never never see the database again, you never see the front end again. You're just doing one sort of a role. I think from a large large kind of standpoint as well, from recruitment perspective, like there's people who want to just work in those enterprise companies where they have stability and, you know, they know what they're kind of getting into. Whereas there's people who, you know, they want to kind of be part of that process and kind of have that impact on what they're building. So I think it's also just like, sometimes there's just two different peoples for the role as well. And a person who's, you know, going for a big bank probably isn't going to be interested in a startup mm. and someone who's really startup orientated isn't going to want to care about hearing about roles within enterprise organizations like that. So I think like a lot of the time, it comes down to like the person as well and understanding what kind of drives them. Yeah, but yeah. That, that's interesting. So like Nick said, think of what you would want if you were that person who you want to hire and yeah. write the job description based based on that. It's interesting to hear the the I guess the the dichotomy though, like because I'm mean, in my personal experience, I've I've got the 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 situation where a lot of the roles do tend to be very attractive to junior or at least like people who are very green as senior engineers or potentially like just become intermediate engineers, and I, and I find that very interesting, uh, particularly with uh, what Rodrigo was saying about um, simply Wall Street where they've got. Uh, a higher degree of of seniors, which which is kind of cool. I, I'm I'm curious. Is there any like cultural aspects of of simply Wall Street that you think promote more seniors to come and join the startup scene? Yeah, I think you know we, we we're very flexible in terms of um um your location. So we 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 now like a remote first company. So that's been in the last couple of years. Obviously, been very uh, attractive. Uh, for for any sort of engineer, right? um, and 
Yeah, I would say, you know, I was just saying in the beginning, I think that having the opportunity to to take ownership of, of certain things, of certain part of the platforms and, and actually grow it uh, and, and improve it as you, you know, putting your experience uh, into practice. So that's very little barrier if someone uh, comes in as a senior to do that. Um, I would say, yeah, it is the flexibility. So it's interesting that, <clears throat> excuse me, we're talking about large companies. So we recently had a senior, um, hopefully he's listening to this. And so, it, it, you know, left us like about two months ago, go to work for a bank. And like four weeks later, he came back. He was like, I don't, I don't want to do, I don't want to work in a bank. It's terrible. So, <laughs> so he came back. So, you know, um, I think during your career, you, you sort of have different, you know, different expectations of what your, your um, work environment should look like. And so um, I think if you can combine a lot of those things, uh, a, good, a good challenge, a good um, a flexible environment, you, you, you can attract um, um, uh, people at uh, any level. And any tips there on, like you've kind of mentioned how you attract people, but once you get that talent, like how does it look like for you to retain retain that top talent? What's some of your tips? My uh, my my go to is to usually just treat them like royalty. To be honest, um, like particularly if you've got a high performing team and that comes together quite quickly, uh, you know it it sounds like a no brainer to treat people that are performing really well like royalty. But it's also often something that like unintentionally gets overlooked in a lot of business contexts as well, like considering the impact of a business decision upon the morale of that high-performing team, something that I find often does get like overlooked. And those are sort of like the smaller things that I find that build up over time that lead to teams leaving and that leads to that talent retention thing. Um, like this is small incremental changes towards you know, team morale. But um, yeah, I, I find sort of keeping that as the whole like, hey, these are the people that are actually producing the things that are making you revenue that is keeping everyone employed, right? I think like never losing sight of that is probably the biggest pro tip, which sounds like a no-brainer, but it, it, my experience feels like it has to be said explicitly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing that uh, I found has worked at, at various companies is the whole creating the culture around um like going out with your team, making sure you spend time having lunches and things like that. But with a distributed team, that is incredibly difficult to do because, of course, you can't do a Friday lunch sort of thing. Um, I have at some startups, we, we had like a sort of Friday afternoon uh, games where we, we use like Skype games like Jackbox games or something or some every week somebody does like a PowerPoint presentation just about something they're in, into, like, so I did like scuba diving or stuff like that to try and build like a remote team culture and build that camaraderie because I've seen in in those companies where we did have like a, in a big company and we all went, had a massive Friday lunch. The, the young guys got are still there even after I've left because they've got that amazing culture of all of their friends who they want to stick around and work with. And that having that culture also comes in really handy when critical things go wrong and then they have to have that working relationship where they're not 
uh, not second guessing, like they know how to communicate with each other. So I think that's a whole other topic. But but yeah, creating that culture of, of almost family. I hate to say that word about about work because no one wants a, a workplace to say we're family. That usually means we're, we're not going to pay you, but we we're going to drive you hard. But but like close friendships, I think. It's a good call about the online games. Uh, I can't understate the importance of smash carts with my team. <laughs> there, Tasco, it's great. It, the, the, the camaraderie is definitely important and built from, from games for sure. Yeah, we, we sort of do the same uh, or a similar thing here. We, we, we do have a lot of online events and, and games and things like that. Um, trying to get more into having in-person events as well, uh, which has been difficult because people are more like just distributed now. Um, but there's always an effort when I try to reach out to the people. Uh, in terms of retaining the talent, it's, yeah, it's always a challenge. I think um, people people always have different aspirations, right? So there are people uh, in our team that, you know, they just want to to build cool stuff, right? So that's that's what they want. If they get in, they're happy. That's fine. Some people are more focused on maybe um, you know chasing a promotion or something like that, and a title or getting more responsibilities. So so yeah, it's I think it's you need to work with them on a one-on-one basis. I try to understand what, you know what they what motivates them. Yeah, it's a very good point. It's reminded me of a, of a I'm going to quote my former head of engineering at SwiftX. So if Nikki ends up watching this, she'll know that I'm quoting her is uh, everyone's there for a different reason. Uh, you've got old mate that wants a title and then you've got Mr. I just want to pay the bills and each and every person is different and is there for different reasons. And you've got to play to that when dealing with them in the team dynamic. That then probably leads to like alignment as another topic, but that's a whole other kettle of fish for us to boil <laughs> later, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. And we'll we'll move on to the, the next topic. That's kind of a good segue there, but just some really great points from you both there. It's like important to find out what drives people and that's, you know, inevitably going to retain people if you kind of know what to play into. Um, but yeah, so Nick, you put forward the question, what are the common trade-offs between prioritizing fast features development versus scalable solutions to support long-term growth? And how can startups strike the right balance between the two, both from an architecture and a talent perspective? So if you wanted to give some context there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so obviously that's a mouthful and a sleeping pool of a question. <laughs> um, I guess for, for, for me, one of the biggest, I guess I want to call it philosophical problems with, uh, with startup mentality and that hustle mentality that comes with it is the concept of moving fast and getting a market fast and, you know, good enough is better than perfection. But then you also have the balance of product theorem, which is more aligned with, you know, you want to do the basics brilliantly. And so I guess for, for me, it's always very much wherever I'm working, there's always this really healthy tension between what product needs in order to survive, but also what engineering needs to do to make sure that they can continue to survive once product has got the thing they needed done. Um, yeah, I, I'm actually really curious about like finding the right balance in this. It's, it's kind of like a, almost like a, like a career long mission for me now to find whether or not there is a, for lack of a better term, a, uh, an algorithm to, to profitability in this little middle zone, if, if you will. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's a difficult question to hit. But I think we we have as an industry, we're getting more mature in, in our architectures and our and our technologies that we understand that okay, micro front ends or, or microservices a bit doing everything in small chunks. It's easy enough to to re-engineer it later or pretty much decide we're going to throw it away. So um, we we have a lot of parts of the application where perhaps it's grown iteratively to to meet demands of um, deployment, but yeah, but perhaps we just throw throw those parts away and and redo it in in future. Um, but it's making that decision: uh, is it good enough to just get it out there and and get it in front of users, see if they even want it first, because we don't want to be building that thing that they don't actually want or or need. Um, but I think we use a CQRS pattern, which is, is a command query segregation. So the separation of concerns of, of things going to, to, to towards the database and then coming out, um, and then also everything being developed in small chunks means that we can pretty much throw bits and pieces away. We also are perhaps not so dry in our code that sometimes we repeat stuff just because if we need to go and re-engineer something over there, we don't have to worry about what's happening over there. And, and so it's making that trade-off as you go. But there's also the thing like, when do we update the code for security purposes and things like that? Because the CEO is pushing out this thing right now, but uh, we, we, we know that there's, there's a security vulnerability in this um, NPM package or something like that. So I, I end up sort of, almost keeping a running thread in the background of this is the stuff we have to do uh, separate from the product team. And then just whenever I can, I'd quickly drop something in or push back on features um, to, to get those updates out there. Do you guys have similar similar experiences or? I think you go, you know, you all depend on which stage of your your startup is like uh, living through now. So, you know, obviously in the very beginning, you don't want to over engineer anything. We might need to, you know, get a prototype done, build something to put in front of customers. And that's important, right? Because you need it. You need a product to be able to, to, to have a business. Um, but yeah, so you don't want to abstract your whole application too soon. Because unless you're really sure what is going to be built and you have something that's already validated, then you can start thinking of how you can really make it better. So, you know, if you're in the very beginning, I guess it's okay to maybe get get something done quickly. And it, once your product is validated, you know your customers want it, you have a market for it. And you know, this is time to, to take it seriously and, and start to, to think about how I can deliver this for you know thousand times users uh, and things like that. Um, so when developing something from scratch, you might there are a few things you might you might you might do. Uh, you can prepare for some some things you know, some some basic things, but you can't prepare for what you don't know. You don't know what's gonna happen. So it's very hard. I guess it's a constant, it's a constant battle mm. of you know trying to find that balance, and, and that balance will change over the the, the, the life uh, of, 
what you have stumbled on. This is uh, this is really interesting for to hear from from my perspective because I've I've worked in companies where you've got this like we're a very old school PHP monolith type of thing where it's just grown over time and people have just bolted on different little things, but they never spend any money on like modularizing or, you know, cleaning stuff up. It's just like, go, 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 go. And they can reach a certain point where the revenue that they're actually returning is quite huge for what they're doing. And then it becomes almost like a commercial battle for features at a certain point. And I almost think that at that point, you're not even a startup really anymore. Like if you're at that point where you, you're, you're like, did, like almost arguing the commercial viability of a feature rather than like the, the, the genuine, like, can we do it and will it work in the market? And then you've got the flip side of my other experience, which is working in the games industry where like everything needs to be like burstably scaled. So I was, I was working for a game studio here in Brisbane and uh, we had like kind of like this premise where at any moment something that was deployed to the cloud could be played by like 10 million people instantaneously in one concurrent session. So you had to like really consider the scale. And we uh, we started with this very like, uh, I want to call it monolithic approach. Like that was what the, the old legacy system was and that kind of worked to a degree. But then we moved to this very, uh, I, I coined the term the Pico service being that it was a service that you could rewrite in two weeks on your own. And like, just that was the whole point of everything that you did. People were sort of like pairing off and 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 that was kind of the, the approach that we took. That was really interesting because it was really successful, but it also had a really high operational cost. And so then when we started to sort of consider it from that perspective, I've kind of moved away from that as being like, okay, well, that's the right thing to to do. It, I find this interesting because hearing the, the the two sides of the coin here about like, okay, using a pattern like CQRS and microservices versus, you know, incrementally using a, mo a monolith and then potentially doing a platform investment to go and break it down. It still feels like you still got the two at like either ends of the coin, like where, like where would the balances, where I've kind of landed at the moment is, and again, I'm anyone who knows me, who's listening to this will know that I'm a massive Go for fanboy. I love Go as a programming language. Where I've landed as a nice middle ground is the hexagonal Go monolith, which I find I still don't like because it's a monolith, but it's also like multiple deploys. So it's it's almost like you have to you have to take the worst of both worlds until you're ready to make a decision on either world at this stage. And I still don't feel comfortable with it. I don't think I ever that's, will, to be honest. That that's sort of what we do in a way. Um, so have you heard of the strangler fit pattern or the strangler pattern? Yeah. So you start with your monolith and then slowly break off into microservices. So we're sort of halfway between both and and do sort of um, maybe the API might be its own deploy or maybe it won't, but whatever is needed for for the, the development process of that particular feature, I think that works well, but it's just up to your discretion really. That's interesting. You say it's up to discretion. I'd be I'd be curious to do like a genuine survey on like most devs in Australia and see where where they would land. Hey, because it's such like a such a polarizing argument. Do you yeah. like microservices or do you like monoliths? Right. But but it's just the the trade off with the overheads of deployment and maintenance of Kubernetes or whatever whatever you're going to do. And do you really need that scalability? Do you need to be able to oh, geo replicate yeah. really quickly into Europe or stuff like that? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a that's a very good point. I think it all comes back to the business context, right? Like, you know, for my own personal side hustle, like it's it's a monolithic hexagonal architecture because I want to have the freedom to break it apart, but I don't care. It can be all deployed as one lump now. But like in the future, I might. So like, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But then also choosing choosing your language also 
depends on what opportunities you have. So in more open source languages like Go or Java, you're going to have a million different architectures to choose from. So we are on .NET with Angular on the front end. They're very opinionated. So yeah. there's pretty much just a few architectures. But I know that if I hire a developer, he can be productive from day one because he's probably 100% worked on it before. Yeah. It's interesting. I could almost tell that you were a .NET house when you said CQRS. Like almost. <laughs> that's it. We found something we like, and that's it. We're not yeah, going any further. <laughs> no, but and then Rodrigo, any last comments there for yourself as well? Um, yeah, I think you know I was, I was talking earlier about the uh, trying to find a balance, right? That's we from from. From my experience at Simply Wall Street, we, you know, the, when I joined, it was it was basically a monolith um, application. But what happened is that at some point we also had um, scalability problems, both like on, on performance of the application, but also um, on productivity, right? So because you have like several teams working on the same code base, that this actually doesn't work very well. So. We went through this journey in the last the last few years where we tried to, you know, um, break it down the the the, the back end, front end, and, and everything in between. So it's very like everything's very independent now. So we went, you know, through this process of um, monolith um, microservice, um, and, and it worked out quite well. Um, but I think we, you know, if we have Done that too soon, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't make sense at that point because um, you could have done a bit sooner. We, you know, we'd be uh, avoid a lot of the problems we had. But you know, I guess we had to to go through that journey to understand the value of having, you know, an application that um, each team can work independently and deploy things uh, with uh, confidence, right? Thanks, Rodrigo. And Wayne, we'll move on to your question. You actually touched on it a little bit before there, but it's how do you tackle security as a startup with limited resources? Who's going to take it away? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, what happens with us is that it sort of falls on, on me a lot of the time to research, keep things up to date. I think a lot of our security posture is able to be more advanced than it would be if we hosted it ourselves. But because we're in Azure, we're falling back on a lot of their resources and they've got Azure Sentinel, that's the AI that is checking what's going on on the, on the um, networks there and checking for intrusion detection. We get all sorts of um, things pop up there, of bots and hackers and all sorts. Um, we also have like uh, Cloudflare in front of it so that that picks up and then there again because so many people have cloudflare they're able to identify um various characters way before we otherwise would so it's relying on those off-the-shelf SaaS products make us able to to do a lot more than we otherwise would and then every so often um, i think about once a year we get a bit of an audit or a um, penetration test and that's usually when we're bringing on an enterprise client who requires that to, to sign the contract. Um, we've also had for like some government and military clients, we've had to go through the, the whole 
um, compliance checklist for, for NIST and those sorts of things, which is a big learning experience um, when you're not from that background. But I think as an IT guy, it's all, security is almost intuitive, but you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> That's a difficult thing, right? When I was working at SwiftX, this was a hot topic, as you can imagine, being in um, being in crypto. Um, there's you know this whole FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt that you're trying to fight by being inherently secure. Um, it's interesting that you call out that it was it's like the responsibility of you, right, as the person that's like leading the charge for for security, because um, it's too often I've actually seen that be the case in a lot of organizations where it's like one person that's almost like the security champion, if you will. Um, what was interesting in my time at, at SwiftX was we we had a very huge security function. Like I think it was it, 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 some people would call it like overstaffed. I probably wouldn't, uh, mostly because a lot of the function was actually focused on like corporate security and business process, which is like nine times out of ten the people are the problem. Um, but what was really interesting was the AppSec team um, at, at SwiftX was very like very competent um, and very good with like. I guess teaching people about about how to how to actually do things like threat modeling, like how to run like uh, was it game days around like vulnerabilities and like exploits and stuff like that. That was really really great, um, and I actually found that through that culture of like always constantly being aware and like the company intentionally investing in like hey we're gonna actually spread that culture across not just the security team or like one security champion, but the whole engineering team. It re really did raise the bar for what you would expect like security to be across an organization. I'd say I'm also probably spoiled because I'm fortunate that in my current job, we also have someone that actually is like employed to be the security champion to do the same thing. Um, but it's interesting because I do see that becoming a lot more like popular across the industry where you have specialists in AppSec or corporate security or, you know, DevSecOps, for example, where it's it's almost like one person to begin with just de facto becomes that 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 go-to guy. And then you have like this push to like, I guess, like share the culture across everyone. I, I, I would personally love to work in an organization where that's like from day one been the culture. Like the culture is just like everything needs to consider the the threats and attack vectors and stuff like that. Um, I mean, that's just obviously probably a pipe dream because like, let's be real, we all have commercial obligations to meet as well as rather than wearing tinfoil hats, but you know, it would be cool. Yeah. I mean, having a security team is a bit of a luxury to be honest, but yeah. we do get our CEO will send out, Hey, look at this uh, phishing email I just got. It looks almost identical to office 365. Be careful, everyone. So I think that like you're saying, everybody needs to be looking out for, for potential threat vectors. Yeah. yeah, usually, um, you know, the the easiest way for someone to to to, to get into to your data is by the phishing methods, right? So they, they go after the person as opposed to after the system. So it, it only takes one person clicking on a link or something like that to you know to get get things compromised. So um, being um, being being proactive about it, like. Um, Telling people well, what's going to happen and you know what 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 the, the sort of uh, things you should avoid. Um, yeah, phishing emails we, we we get them all the time. We actually you know have it, it became so 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 frequent that you know so we we just make jokes about it now. But you know everyone is is aware that um, you know 
uh, someone is asking you to you know, give them money or click on a link or do something like that's, that's very suspicious. And, and in, yeah, in terms of the system, I guess, you know, um, so some, of you, some of you guys mentioned uh, using, we're using third parties, uh, companies that can help you with that, right? So having, having a security team is actually very, very difficult when you're running small. So, you know, there are, there are companies that can bring in and help you with that, uh, doing audits or, or an issue, uh, trying to uh, get a certification, for example. So um, there's a lot of things to consider until you can have a dedicated team to look after that. Yeah, and, th and there's lots of products out there now that will scan, even as you commit the code on your own machine, it'll run something that looks for vulnerabilities in the code and looks for known issues and your dependencies. So that whole DevSecOps, so checking before you've even built and deployed to the server is probably a good idea. Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, some of the some of the open source um, GitHub actions or like GitLab CI templates you can use for sure. I, I, I make extensive use of them. Um, I also find Dependabot really, really good at fixing CVEs like really fast as well, which I would like, I was really shocked at because like you'd think that a dependency manager would be like, oh, I'll just update to the latest ver version and all that sort of stuff. But like, I think it kind of goes hand in hand, right? Like if you're managing a dependency and that pet dependency is a CVE, of course, the vendor of the dependency is going to update the version so it doesn't have a critical vulnerability. So it's kind of it's kind of cool that like the dependency world has has joined the force of the security world to try and make the supply chain attacks less of a problem too. Yeah, absolutely. A very good question to put forward there. Thank you, Wayne. Super important. I think we'll get time to just cover one more question, which I think will be important for our listeners and yourselves as well. Um, that's just around as your company's growing as a startup into a scale up, what are some formal processes and practices that you feel need to be put in place? So I think, yeah, Good to hear from you, Nick, what you think kind of going through a range of startups and scale-ups yourselves. I would say actually that the, the number one thing for engineers is to have strong career pathways and strongly defined career pathways for them to progress in their careers. Too often I've found startups that are lacking in this area that I've worked in where teams that I've been running have really sort of felt like they've hit a ceiling, so to speak, mm -hmm. and not having a, like a, a benchmark of performance or like key performance indicators or even like key performance aspects, just like literally just like, hey, this is kind of what subjectively I think you should be at performing in this level to be like, hey, you get this title. Like those types of indicators are, are really like almost like not even like pro tips. It's like critical to, to having a, a healthy team and growth mindset for a scale up as well. You've also got to take into account, like if you're scaling up a startup, right, then you're going to be adding lots more people. So if you haven't nailed that down, you're going to end up with this problem where you're going to have, for lack of a, pe a better term, like culture pollution. It's not really pollution. It's more like dissolving culture, if you will. But having that like grounded set of expectations of how people should perform, how they should work together, that for me is like the like the bare bones, bare minimum. Like you just, you can't scale up a startup without that. And that's not just in engineering too. Like across an organization, like my, my like for, for my own business, like my preference will be to have that uh, just purely because people know where they're going. People know what they're doing and where they're heading with their career. And that creates a really high degree of safety as things are moving really fast and scaling up. Yeah, awesome. And Wayne, you put forward that question as well. What's your thoughts there? Um, well, I, I, there's there's a lot of sort of things I think 
that we don't really think of as tech people, but when you're moving into into the sort of scale up, you have to think of governance and reporting to the board and having your tech roadmap out to a year or whatever, um, having more documentation as opposed to just saying the um, our backlog items for sprints are our documentation. Um, yeah, because you also got to start to think about, well, what's our exit strategy? And when we do go to sell, sell the business or we go to do an IPO, what sort of a documentation do we need there to prove to investors or, or buyers that actually it is a valid company and, and we've got we've got stuff there um, that's that's robust and, and it's not going to fail as soon as it gets handed over. So also things like making sure there's enough unit tests and code coverage and and just being able to yeah prove what you've been doing for the last five five years has has the value that you want out of it. Um, yeah, so yeah, I agree with that. Uh, the development, there's a lot of processes in terms of development in, in the engineering space that can be that can be uh, implemented. Uh, being clear on how you how you implement changes, how you how you bring to the team a new a new solution, new uh, a new framework, a new sort of process. So being clear how, how to proceed with that. Uh, I would add here, um, we mentioned about career path, that's an important one. Let's say having a strong onboarding is very important uh, because it's like, it's gonna be the first impression uh, that you know that new uh, engineer is gonna have in your company and then you hire. So it's, it's, they have a good onboarding uh, that's, that 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 needs to be implemented. That's 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 mandatory, in my opinion. Um, and it comes back also to retaining the talent, right? And if you if you start off with a good experience, you're most more likely to to, to stick around for longer. Um, and if you, things don't work out, like if you hate it in the first couple of weeks, you, know, you have very very few reasons to 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 stay. And yeah, I think yeah, I think that's the only two things I would add for for what I need to say. Yeah, I think that goes back to the first question about um, getting talent to to come to the company. You, I've noticed on LinkedIn, it's almost like um, onboarding as an experience. Like you see all of these posts of like they've got this desk full of swag, all these MacBooks and iPads and Apple Watches and T-shirts and mm-hmm. socks and what everything with the the company's logo on it. And it becomes, yeah, almost the whole experience of joining the company and and joining the family. Kind of hype around it. <laughs> yeah, which is probably also a good um, advertisement for for other new hires to come as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I have to say, I, I, it's definitely onboarding is a is a big point too. It's a, it's a good call out. Uh, interesting working at uh, working at Airtasker um, as a as a new hire. Uh, coming from a company like SwiftX that was so strong on onboarding experience, one of the things that got me was how good the technical onboarding was at Airtasker. Like, and Wayne, you touched on it before, right? Like with .NET shops, you can hire someone in and they know they can be productive because it's done one way, like from day dot. It's very similar to that type of experience with myself joining Airtasker as well. Like that strong onboarding where you're like, you're performant pretty much from the get-go with that whole experience, I think that's, yeah, it's a very important part of scaling up for sure. You get more people and get more productive faster. 
Great points, everyone. And it's where we'll leave the discussion here for today. A big thank you to Rodrigo, Wayne and Nick for joining the podcast today and sharing their insights on startups. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you.